The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. <laughs> Scott Farkas. Scott Farkas. What a rotten name. We were trapped. There he stood between us and the alley. Scott Farkas staring out at us with his yellow eyes. He had yellow eyes. So help me, God, yellow eyes. his crummy little toady mean rotten his lips curled over his green teeth randy lay there like a slug it was his only defense world you were either a bully a toady or one of the nameless rabble of victims Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 1st, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be as always, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join in on the conversation today, in which we take a look at, I guess, two very different issues and themes, eh, Robert? You're going to be looking at the Internet and technology with a positive view towards the influence they've had on our lives, I guess. That's right. We live in remarkable times. And you're also going to be looking at some, what I would might call, uncharted space missions. By that, I mean uncharted by the media. We don't really know about them that often. Well, they're uh, there, but they don't dwell on them like they used to. Sure. And I'm going to start off today with a look at bullies in our schools and bullies in the marketplace, bullies in the legislature. You can find them everywhere, Robert. <laughs> Bully for them. Yes. You know, on the heels of a, of a local controversy here in London surrounding the name the London Rippers... It occurred to me that something's very wrong somewhere in the way that we are being told by officialdom to look at the issue of violence. I think the outrageous overreaction to London's baseball team's new name being the London Rippers, accompanied by a logo that, well, symbolized Jack the Ripper, I don't think there's much doubt about that, is part of what prompted my subject matter today. And uh, although you might think it was because of what McGinty did yesterday... I remember when they brought this London Rippers thing, and at first I thought it was some kind of downtown BIA concept, like one they did about a decade or two ago called uh, Downtown London, Isn't It Loverly? Do <laughs> 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 you remember that one? And then they had all British flags on everything. Uh. And uh, to try and put a British identity to a purely North American-looking downtown. I suppose if you want to go British, I guess you and I are the London Bobbies, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Oh, geez. By the way, you know, there is a connection between Jack the Ripper of historical notoriety, and this London, Ontario. Really? Yes, there was, um, it was actually uh, hypothesized that uh, one suspect 
had his first killing here in this town. No kidding. Yeah. And then he moved to the United States, where a few more murders happened. And then he moved to London, England, where he continued his carnage against uh, prostitutes. Well, maybe that's a story we can look at on another show. Mm. And of course, uh, that's far more than bullying, of course. And um, as you can add to all this controversy, uh, just yesterday, Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty introduced so-called anti-bullying legislation into the legislature, which to me, again, is another sure sign that something's seriously wrong in our schools. And McGuinty's government introduced this legislation, a major feature of which has been said to be allowing the expulsion of bullies from schools and of targeting hate-motivated behavior. No bullying of any kind for any reason, says McGinty in his continued support for zero-tolerance policy on violence, which ironically has been in place for many years now. We've been complaining about it for decades, and now he's going to entrench it even more. That's been working well, eh? No. <laughs> <laughs> So what they're doing here is politicizing a simple social problem, I think. And at the general ages we're dealing with here, particularly in the elementary schools, I don't think hate is even an issue. Uh, From what I've seen of kids, kids will bully you on anything. Kids don't even see race, Dr. McGinty. They don't even know about it until you tell them about it. (laughs) Yeah, he's teaching them about it. You bet. And when you see the other things that we're doing in in our society, you know, introducing all these segregated schools and things like that. It's amazing that, that we haven't got more of this going on. And, uh, you know, and then, then he says, uh, you know, we're going to allow them to expel, or expel bullies, right? And given what you said last week, Robert, about our public education system on the show, it seems to me that expelling kids from school for being a bully would be to reward them, <laughs> right? And in their exposure to the daily propaganda they're getting in the schools and leaving the victims there. When I was I'm just a trustee, being facetious a yeah, bit. Of course but, you are, yeah. But when I was a trustee for six years, I think the board expelled one person and then a few months later actually took him back into the system. And this person, if I'm not mistaken was expelled for um, a knife fight, um, which still goes on, by the way, all the time. Yeah. But yeah. they don't get expelled. As a matter of fact, they think that the best thing they can do for them is keep them in the system. Oh, because if we expel them, then they're not going to get an education, and then they're going to be uh, uh, become bad persons, you know. <laughs> uh, it's it's what they really want is the is the headcount money from the government. That There's they that. Get. That's, that's really what runs that. Looking at an article here, November 16, by Barbara Kay. When Girls Ruin Girls. Subheading reads, A new documentary shows what many women painfully learn, that young girls make vicious bullies. And she writes, I don't remember being bullied by other girls when I was young. And that's an interesting observation in and of itself. And, of course, she wrote this, at, you know, in an age before social media and a very different culture in our society when she went to school. Kay highlights a new documentary created by Laura Parksakian and Molly Stroud called Finding Kind. And she writes, quote, We see Lorraine at one school asking an audience of girls, How many of you feel insecure? And every single hand goes up. The filmmakers are not surprised. Lorraine says, 100% of girls at some point experience peer bullying and may go on to become bulliers. There's no question girls and boys are different when it comes to social bullying. Guys soon forget insults. Girls never do. Guys are happy in groups and keep it emotionally right or light. Girls crave intimacy and willingly succumb to a, quote, tyranny of niceness in order to be accepted. Feminism should have made girls more confident. Paradoxically, the ideology encouraged materialism and premature sexualization that exasperate negative female relationships, writes Barbara Kay. 
on another another opinion, <clears throat> not another opinion, another opinioner, Rachel Saw, October 8th, 2011, London Free Press. Rule number one for kids who bully is behavior must stop. And she writes, the only thing that makes me angrier than bullying is when people call it, or, or coddle the bully. She then refers to, quote, the suicide of 11-year-old Mitchell Wilson, who suffocated himself on September 6th after receiving a subpoena to testify against a boy who allegedly mugged him on, in November 2010. And then Rachel read an interview with clinical psychologist Joanne Cummings, director of PrevNet, Promoting Relationships, Eliminating Violence Network. And she writes, Cummings said we shouldn't call bullies bullies. Rather, we should employ a no-blame, problem-solving response to aggressive kids. Oh, dear. I gave Cummings a call to clarify her stance on the no-blame approach. Sound like no-fault insurance or something, yeah? <laughs> uh, we certainly use the word bullying, she tells me, but we think of it more of as a verb than as a noun. It's very important to name the action, to label it, and to deal with it proactively and quickly, end quote. Okay, writes Rachel, she says, I get what Cummings is saying, but semantics aren't going to help a child terrified to step into a classroom to walk home alone. Victims don't care if the punks tormenting them are bullies or are bullying. <laughs> they just want it to stop. Changing behavior is a long process. And while the powers that be scramble to help the bully become a better person, they too often conveniently forget about the victim. One of the worst parts of being bullied is not the abuse itself, but the knowledge people in authority are looking the other way. When I was in grade 9, I dreaded science class because of a bully. For weeks, she ridiculed me in front of the whole class while the teacher calmly went selectively deaf. Finally, after seeing me come home in tears too often, my older sister stepped in. That landed both of us in the principal's office for, you guessed it, bullying. <laughs> and this is the true meaning of zero tolerance, by the way. That's what happens, right? Yes, the victim gets just yeah. as... Uh, and uh, so she writes, bully. newsflash, bullies make the lives of their victims miserable in home and at school. When we tiptoe around bullies, we might as well go ahead and kick their victims while they're down. Yes, help them deal with their psychological problems, but not at the expense of innocent victims, end quote. So there you have two basic accounts, strangely enough, both by women, both about women bullying women. And, uh, you know, that's part of the scenario you never hear about. And then just this morning, I hear a representative of the Thames Valley Education Board saying, I think her name is Barb Sonia, if I got her name right, and she was saying that uh, we support both the victim and the bully, all right? And she, but she was unclear of what this meant in practice, but it sounds an awful like, lot like the same old approach that, you know, we've been using for quite a while now. Now, you'll recall, Robert, uh, we talked about the use of force on the show a couple of weeks back and about the necessity of force as the ultimate arbiter of disputes, because let's face it, at the end of everything, right? At the bottom of the... You want to take a comment from someone? And of the necessity of using such force uh, justly and equitably. Do I understand we have a call on the phone? Let's, let's hear the caller first. Let's uh, have the caller on. Hello, caller. Hi. Thanks Hi. for having me on. Uh, just to touch upon what you had said a couple of uh, minutes ago about zero tolerance, I find that with the zero tolerance system, you're absolutely right. A lot of the times, uh, if there's an altercation between a bully and a bully's victim... The, the victim's carted into the principal's office and, and get gets a talking to as well. Yes. Uh, I'm uh, I'm 27, and, and I remember in public school, uh, it just started to get into the days of when zero tolerance was being kicked in. 
And I just wanted to know, like, whatever happened to the days of if, if there was a bully and it was picking on someone, that the someone that they were picking on or being abused had the right of self-defense to, you know, beat the crap out of the person that was picking on them. You know, sort of like a, a one-on-one, you know, you get your comeuppance if you're treating someone poorly. With zero tolerance, that's out the door. How are these kids supposed to feel like they have any power against what's happening to them when they often get in trouble themselves and everybody treats bullying like, oh, the bully has a problem, too, that we have to address and maybe something bad, you know. If you're treating someone in um, inappropriately, you know, you deserve what's coming to you. And I just think it's the issue's gotten watered down over the last decade or so. You couldn't have identified the issue any better for us. You've really segued the next part of my show. Uh, I'm glad to hear. Thanks for that comment, by the way. And uh, he's got it right. You know, that's exactly what we've been seeing, too. Hey, you, know what he, you know what he's pointing to? Is that the principal in the situation mm-hmm. has to make a moral decision between what's the right behavior and what's the wrong behavior. Who was in the right? Who was in the wrong? They don't want to have to make that decision because the school system by and of itself, is amoral. I agree. And, you know, I'm of the firmest, firm belief now that the single greatest source of the entire problem is to be found in the philosophy on which our educators and governments are operating. And the governments, of course, own and operate the education system, which is more than just a coincidence. And, you know, it is a philosophy of force in the use of violating individual rights to institute group and collective rights, which do not really exist in reality. I think we're manufacturing bullies in unprecedented numbers, regardless of what they're saying out there. It's not like they're going to go away. Bullies are a permanent part of society. Well, of course. And And as a matter of fact, if you you do not punish bad behavior, of course bad behavior is going to flourish. Exactly. And, uh, you know... Yet the very people who are at the epicenter of creating the problem are now resorting to more bullying themselves to stop the bullying, and I'm talking about our legislators for most of the time. You know, I've I've been watching all this anti-violence strategy pursued by officials over the last few weeks with all the, you know, the silliness in the paper. It's all about awareness and not on action, which is actually discouraged and condemned. Ribbons, chanting, singing, all sorts of nonsensical, symbolic things that aren't going to do anything are, seem to be the approach to fighting violence that we read the most about. You know, quote, Northridge students pledged to sing the bullies away, reads a headline in Metroland. I'm thinking, wow, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Take a pledge, take a pledge. You've got to take a pledge. To do what? You can't fight back. You can only, what, report? report a bullying situation when they don't do anything about it. And, of course, you have all the pacifists at the school board, no violence allowed, no self-defense. So, you know, it gets ridiculous. So, in the name of fighting violence, advocates are often resorting to the use of force in favor of persuasion. And so we have this whole situation where, you know, even the Occupy movement, realistically, I mean, that was, that's, that's a form of bullying, isn't it? Of course, it's intimidation. It was intimidation on a big big scale. We see that in unions. We see that in many areas where the kids are learning by example of the adults and what goes on around them. And so you can do all the anti-bullying stuff you want to, and it just won't change too much. It's interesting, you know, on the issue of, I guess, uh, of um, violence and consent in general, um, we, use, we use force, but, it, you know... 
suppose it was sex we were talking about. Our officials are always correctly focused on the issue of consent when it comes to sexual issues. But consent does not seem to concern them when it comes to the issues of force and violence so much. In fact, they'll, they'll ignore those, those principles of consent. I mean, we've just been witness to mass demonstrations of force, which is not being recognized as such. That is the Occupy movement. And force and violence are becoming more and more acceptable as means of political expression. And that's a really interesting thing. Um, we see unions and force, uh, unions rely on force and violence every time they go on strike. Organized labor, as I've said before, is merely a euphemism for organized violence and force. In this case, backed by the force of law for the purpose of preventing and prohibiting consensual <laughs> agreements and relationships, right? So let's, let's be clear that civilization itself can be defined as a society in which the use of force as a means of routine activity between individuals has to be eliminated. And though civilizations of many orders have existed throughout history, some were clearly more civilized than others. And the most visible evidence of the difference between civilization is the use of public force and violence. And it's a very clear one. There are, it has to be subtle in some cases. And it seems to me the inevitability of violence is a fact, and it's a recurring event in society. Violence cannot be eradicated in the sense that we keep hearing from propagandists. They talk about violence the way they talk about poverty. Yeah, we can get rid of those things. Mm -hmm. As if somebody's causing those things, like especially poverty. So zero tolerance, remember, means zero defense allowed. It means zero distinctions. It means zero judgment. It means zero you know, applicable of, of right and wrong. This is zero tolerance in practice, though not in theory. In theory, they tell you, well, we're, we won't put up with, with any kind of uh, violence of any sort. So, you know, here I sit, I suppose my calling in life has tended towards the study of philosophy as much as an unplanned career <laughs> as it was. And this interest, uh, I have to tell you, Robert, gives one a weird taste in entertainment and symbolism, meaning that I appreciate the insights offered in the seemingly silliest of TV shows, <laughs> like Gilligan's Island, or like The Munsters, the 60s comedy series from which we will hear the upcoming parable. I especially love shows that deal with moral parables and basic philosophical principles, even when they're silly. That's why I like a lot of those shows. Symbolism is a powerful force, and that's the function of art and entertainment. And sometimes you can discover fundamentals of life's lessons in the most unlikely of sources. And to wit on that one, we'll tune in to this, and we'll be back. Looking for somebody, monster? No. Hi, Jack. I mean, McGinney. I thought you'd find me. Yeah, I found you. There's a question I'd like to ask you. The answer is no. I don't want a fat lip. Well then, what would you do if I just smacked you in the eye? Nothing. If I smacked you in the eye, you wouldn't do nothing. What's the matter? Are you yellow? No, I'm not yellow. I'm green. And besides, my pop told me to ignore you when you're beating me up. He said it would make you a better person. Your pop told you that? He sounds like a bigger dope than you, even. He is not a bigger dope than me, even. He is, too. He is not. Nobody's a bigger dope than me, and... Uh, well, you know what I mean. Well, here's what I mean. Next time I see you, I'm going to tear your nose off and put it on backwards. When you sneeze, you'll blow your brains out. I wonder how Eddie made out with the bully today. <laughs> Hi, Eddie. Hi. Hello, Eddie. 
Well, did everything go all right at school today? No, everything went wrong. Hey, did you run into the bully? Yeah, I ran into the bully. Did you fight back? No, I ignored him like Pop said. Well now, and how did your father's theory work? <laughs> I think Pop's theory has a few wrinkles in it. Oh dear me, my poor baby. Herman and his philosophy. What'll we do now? Hi, you guys. Hello, Eddie. What's for supper? Well, Herman, your son went to school today, and he followed your advice, and look what happened. <laughs> well, look at the stake on your son's eye. Aren't you going to do something about it? Uh, you're darn tootin' I am. As Sonny Liston said after his last fight, I think it's time to sit down and reevaluate our philosophy. <laughs> well, son, I'm off to the office and you're off for school. Now, remember what I taught you. Right, Pop. Sure thing. Herman, you haven't been encouraging Eddie to fight, have you? Why, oh, certainly not, dear. Uh, we monsters only fight when provoked. Uh, right, Eddie? A monster! Are you provoking me? Huh? I dare you to say that again. Huh? Okay, you just provoked me. What's the idea? I thought your pup told you to ignore me. Yeah, but he taught me to ignore you in a new way. <laughs> That's I just I just thought that was so funny. Did you yeah. notice the name of the bully? I sure did. You know, I, I'm telling you, the goddess serendipity must have been close by when we went to production with this week's show. <laughs> we started off talking about Jack the Ripper. Our premier, McGinty, introduces anti-bullying legislation, and the bully in this 1960s clip is named Jack McGinty. <laughs> What's the odds, right? <laughs> and not only that, you know, Eddie in the clip, he says he, he's not yellow, he's green. Well, that's what the color they're turning everybody into in the kids in the schools <laughs> these days, right? Everybody and everything is green today. Prophecy, coincidence, or destiny? Only the monsters know for sure. After all, they clearly understood that the solution to their problem was philosophy, and isn't it scary when you have to go to a show like that to find some answers that you can't find in the Ontario legislature? And worse, that when you get into the Ontario legislature, they become the bullies in the marketplace. You know, my daughter was just telling me that uh, this, just this past week, by the way, my grandson's class had to sit in total si silence for a, a solid hour not uttering a word. And what was the reason for this? So that the kids could experience what the oppressed feel like, because apparently they have no voice. Uh -huh. And here's my grandson. He's just turned 10. He has no idea what this experience is supposed to teach him, let alone understand why he's being asked to play the fool. My words are not his. But, but, you know, when you're talking about voices for the oppressed, that can only be a political concept. 
That's way above what nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds are What did I say about. last week about the political indoctrination of children? You know, it, it, it has to be a political voice, since, uh, since obviously in reality poor people do actually have voice boxes, right? They can speak, right? And they are able to physically speak. So I have to assume the experience was intended to teach the kids what oppression feels like by oppressing them for an hour, <laughs> right? And, and, and apparently, so if they had to go to the bathroom, they had to ask in writing, too, but that would be expressing yourself. I don't know if they could get away with that. But, you know, the idea of bullying is more than just... Uh, what happens in the schoolyard. We, we tend to, to, to misdirect punishments so often in society, and we get in, you know, everyone's doing this in the marketplace. There's all kinds of examples, um, not the least of which was the whole thing over the, uh, the London uh, Rippers and all that stuff, you know, and, and the threats there. Another thing that happened, just aside, you know, like you hear about this ban on shark fin soup? Yes. Now, that's bullying in the marketplace. Who's being forced to pay for whose crime? You know what I mean? All these municipalities that blindly ban the sale of shark fin soup in the restaurants with, with, that are in their jurisdictions, they've accomplished less than nothing with regard to minimizing the practice of how sharks are harvested from the sea. Apparently, you know, those who advocate the ban would have preferred that the sharks were either killed or used for meat rather than tossed back into the sea alive, where some other denizen of the deep would eat them, right? Which is what goes on in nature, by the way. So I wasn't even, you know, it, it's kind of like the equivalent of banning the sale of chicken in all restaurants after McDonald's found out some of their chicken producers were not handling the chickens properly. You know, that's the kind of a blanket approach. And by attacking the consumer of a product, it's like forcing a boycott on the marketplace, and it won't do anything for the, the, the supposed beneficiary of this act, which are the sharks floating around in the sea. And then, you know, you have municipalities obsessed with increasing spending and holding the line on taxes. So they're faced with the conundrum of zero tax increases, cuts to service and user fees. And uh, they spend all this money, most of all, so much money on entertainment and festivals and not on essential services. And, you know, user fees are just like the adjust economic re- relationship because that there is where the beneficiary of a service is the person who pays for it. Taxes and non-user fees are unjust. The beneficiary of the service does not pay for the service. A non-user is forced by law to pay for a service that does not benefit them. So, and you got taxes collected by force. User fees are voluntary, and yet you have more people advocating taxes all the time. So, you know, it's it's an interesting situation. What do we do about all of this use of force? You've been in you were you were in the public school system for so long as a trustee. If you were going to a parent, what would you say is the solution to the bullying problem? Did you have one when you were a trustee? Did you think about it, or did you have a solution? Well, as a trustee, we'd, we would sit in on uh, uh, hearings quite often when uh, when kids were either suspended and, and a parent would advocate for them. And I was it was very difficult for me because I don't believe in the zero-tolerance mm-hmm. philosophy of the school system. And and usually the parents who would come and advocate for the kids are good parents. And the kid has usually been the victim, and that's what they're advocating for. Rare is a situation when a, the parent of a bully, I mean a real bully, would come to the, would even take the time to come to the school mm-hmm. and advocate for their kid. Because usually that's where the bullying starts, is in the home, because the home is not a good environment. And they take that into the school. Mm-hmm. So the parents that we saw were usually good parents of good kids. And usually of the victims then? The victims, yeah. Yeah, so you never saw any of the bullies' parents as a rule. 
As a rule, no, I don't. Right. I, matter of fact, I can't remember one. What do you think about the idea of introducing shame to the whole situation? Stop hiding the identities of offenders. I mean, we live in a society where we're registering gun owners <laughs> and didn't think anything of it. They weren't guilty of anything. But we don't register offenders. Is, is that something, you know, in the whole, uh, the whole child protection concept? You know, not, you know to have you, shame, you have to have a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. And as I said just earlier, the school system in and of itself does not have a proper sense of right and wrong, of, a, of a, an initiator of violence, uh, versus uh, the victim of violence. They can't distinguish between the two. That's why we have zero tolerance. And I think there is where you've hit the nail on the head on what has to be done. That distinction must be made. Of course. And it's not until you make that proper distinction. Then you can have shame. Yes, and then you can also use force properly Yes. in the way it should be used, as we will hear in the following clip again <laughs> from the Munsters, and we'll return after this break. We'll be back right after this. I'll beat up the whole fifth grade for good measure. Fire, fire, fire. Pow, pow, bang, pow, pow, bang, pow. Eddie, go to your room. But mom, us guys are having a ball clobbering guys. Eddie, go to your room. And Herman, I want to talk to you. I think I'll go down in the lab. I have a few things hanging up to dry. Grandpa, you stay here. <clears throat> Do I gather that you're upset about something, dear? Herman Munster, that was the school principal on the phone. Eddie beat up two boys today, and he has threatened the entire class. You have turned our son, our sweet son, into a bully. Now, there is one thing that I will not tolerate in this family. And that is violence. Understand? I'm beginning to see your point. Morning, Lois. Hey. Have you seen this poll in the star today? What are you reading this rag for, Jimmy? Oh, look at it. It says 20% of Metropolis is anti-Superman. What is wrong with people? You know what's really weird? So when they asked these people why they didn't like Superman, half of them couldn't give a specific reason. <sighs> I swear we are witnessing the dumbing down of America. People with opinions who have no idea why they even have opinions. <laughs> what is that? When they remodeled this place, they should have given out an instruction manual on this new stuff. That's a fax coming in over your computer. They all have fax modems now. Would have been nice if somebody put out a memo. <laughs> well, they did. Check your email. Nobody's shown me how to retrieve my email. Well, there's a fax on your computer explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like it's rush hour on the super information highway. Yeah, and I'm stuck in traffic. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 to join in our conversation today. Or you can uh, send us an email. Not a fax. Don't bother with the faxes. Send us an email. <laughs> That's so passe. Isn't it amazing? You know, that show was only done in the 90s, you know. Yeah. And, and, and uh, That's what I'm going to get into about right soon is because right. the, the dramatic changes in technology in just two decades has just been phenomenal. It's gobsmacked me. But, uh, uh, yeah, send us an email. Like I said, no faxes, please, at uh, justrightmedia.org. That's feedback at justrightmedia.org. 
drop us a line there and visit our website at just rate at um, justrightmedia.org. <laughs> yep. Okay, technology. You know, sometimes we on this show, quite often we talk about things which uh, make us upset, make us angry and passionate about the way the world is and how we should change it for the better. Every now and then we sort of digress from that trend and talk about the things which are good and which we like and which we would like to have even better. But like, like, like last week, what did you talk about, Bob? Chess. Mm-hmm. You know, no violence. Actually, that was a rather bloody yeah, game. very violent game. <laughs> <laughs> and every now and then we talk about the good things in life and why life is good in this society in the West. Uh, so for all its problems, I think we live in a pretty amazing time. In fact, all you have to do is pick up a history book, Bob, and uh, to see that many of the problems we have today pale in comparison to the problems suffered by our ancestors. Sure. Pale. We have no idea. We want to keep it that way. That's the thing. That's why we're here. We want to keep it this way and make it better. You know, it's an amazing time because of all the technological wonders, at least part of why it's such an amazing time, that uh, have been invented over the past couple of decades. You know, when I was attending university in the 70s, I took an elective, uh, many elective courses actually, in computer science. And at that time, we programmed the mainframe computer using punch cards. Oh, I went through that. took a whole solid year at college in, in computers. Punch cards. Yeah, oh, I carried them around. <laughs> and, man, you had to have good elastic bands. Oh, yes. And if, if they broke, if they broke that was you a, that were could, screwed. That could be a year's work <laughs> down the tubes. <laughs> and it wasn't YouTube. You know, I learned the, um, the computer languages of Fortran and Pascal, yeah. which are basically the Latin and Greek of today's computer programmers. I don't even think that they exist anymore. They do still. Do they? Yeah, Pascal and Fortran? Very, very rare. I know there's still some programmers really? and some large companies that yeah. use that language. I thought it was more like C++ and C Sharp and all those Mostly new ones. No, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost gone, I, I think. I'm not sure, though. Yeah. You know, the leaps in technology over the past 40 years have absolutely stunned me. And we don't talk about it often enough, but I think we should really reflect on how lucky we are to, to live in such a technological age. I used to enjoy watching a program. Do you, you probably remember this one, Bob? In my teens, I, I, I watched Here Come the 70s. Ever see it? No, I never did. Oh, okay. I'm aware of it. Yeah. It was not unlike a popular science mm-hmm. magazine for television. It was a great show with a catchy techno theme mm-hmm. um, by a Canadian band called Syrinx, and the tune was called Tilikum. But um, it also had a naked woman walking into the ocean as its closing sequence, and I think that was part of its allure to me. <laughs> <laughs> As a teenager. Anyway, the program showcased marvelous new inventions and foretold of even more dramatic things to come. But the prognostications of these people in the 70s were often wide of the mark. Like any futurist, you know, you're going to be wrong a lot of times. On the one hand, they didn't envision the leaps in the computer technology that we have experienced. And yet, on the other hand, I'm still waiting to commute to work on my jetpack. You, you know... <laughs> yes, <laughs> or your or your floating car or whatever flying right? car. Flying and all car. That. But you know, a lot of what I think where futurists might have missed the ball, you know, in terms of making an accurate prediction, wasn't so much about the technology that they were predicting, but more about the economic conditions into which that technology was being introduced. Because hmm. unless the economy responds to a technology, it cannot move. It can't take off. Imagine if nobody really could figure out a use for a computer. Would we any, or would fund any, it. Or fund it, yeah. Fund its development, yeah. Yes. With some so capital. So it wouldn't happen. 
Yeah. Or, or market it that's, or distribute it. That's where they go wrong most often. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the invention might be there, but it's just not practical. Uh, something like, say, wind turbines. <laughs> turbines. <laughs> yeah, turbines. You know. <laughs> a wind turbine paints a different uh, picture no, that's than a, a yeah. wind turbine. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but, but still, you know, that's a premature technology trying sure. to be forced on us by government. Yeah. And it may go the way of the dodo bird precisely because of that mistake. You know, the, I think the, uh, the greatest technological achievement which has changed our intellectual lives for the better has been the Internet. You know, it's primarily because it deals with information and communication. It's the Gutenberg press of our age. And I think that that is probably one of the greatest inventions of all time. Originally, it was designed by and for the U.S. military, so that uh, universities could share information. It has blossomed into a technology that is changing the world in so many ways, it's hard to fathom what impact it'll have in the coming de- decades. Even the issue of bullying I just talked about is, is, is largely becoming an Internet issue as well. Oh, sure, bullying you know? over the Internet. Because yeah, yeah. anything that can happen in real life can happen on <laughs> is an issue in the Internet as Pretty well. Pretty much, yeah. Make no mistake about it, though, the the Internet is still in its infancy, and I'm relishing to see how it Mm -hmm. grows. Now, even though there are university students today who have grown up with it all their lives, there are many alive today, myself and you included, Bob, who could not have dreamed to be living in such a remarkable, with such a remarkable invention. To me, it's become an invaluable tool. And just to give you an example, I'll relate just how important it is for the development of this very radio program. You know, without the Internet, there'd be no clips to break up the show. And the clips are essential to what makes this show just right. Well, just right. Yeah, (laughs) or or they'd be very narrowed down to my personal video collection, (laughs) which wouldn't have been very much. (laughs) No. We may have had to hold a cassette tape recorder up to the radio or television Mm. to record a newscast or a piece of music and try to play it back on the show as a clip, but with an obvious tremendous loss of fidelity. And as it it is now... If we need a clip, we just think of a show we've seen, which is relevant to our talk, go online or download the program, usually on YouTube or as a peer-to-peer torrent download, edit the clip in editing software such as Adobe Sound Blaster or Audition, share the clip with each other, you and I just share them back and forth over FTP for our comments and or approval, and then save the clips on a thumb drive. I just bought a 32-gig thumb drive for 20 bucks. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. And you we give couldn't th- get hard drives <laughs> in your machine with the 32 gigabytes. That was a big deal at one time. You know, the first computer I worked on was here at the university. It cost $5,000. It was an IBM computer, and it had those two five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy drives. Oh, yeah. You put the program into one of them, and your data oh, yeah. on the other. Oh, my God, was that ever so. And that was just like, what, 25 years ago? Yeah. You know, then we give, we give the thumb drive to our controller, Ed, here in the studio, and he plays it back during the show. Now, 40 years ago, to do these things that such computer hardware and software allows us to do today would have taken a specialty studio with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and specialized technicians. And here we are, just two guys off Mm -hmm. the street doing it, you know, at home. Now, research for the show. This is the intriguing part. Well, we're not at home right now. No, we're not (laughs) at home right now. We're in the studio of CHRW. Research for the show comes from ideas we find not only in the ancient communication medium called the newspaper, but online via the social media where our, quote, friends post news items of interest from around the world. And once we have a topic, 
We can research it, often going directly to the source. Original scientific journal articles can be perused. Newspaper articles from any newspaper in the world can be brought up in seconds. Video news clips or documentaries can be downloaded and watched within minutes. Or we can even email the people at the heart of a topic directly or chat with them in real time. Forty years ago, we would be stuck with just a couple of mainstream media sources here in Canada, probably the CBC and CTV, or some of the newspaper chains, for our information on what was happening in the world. We'd have to go to a public library or university library and look up books in a card catalog and journal articles in a huge index volume, usually engaging the services of a librarian to sift through the library stacks just to find the research item we wanted, if it existed in that library at all, and we didn't have to go to a library loan system. Interesting that, you know, libraries are still doing that, but they're doing it with computers. Yes. And now they have the sure. additional problem of filtering and porn and all that stuff. <laughs> that, that's what you hear about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if we Welcome wanted, to the 21st century. Yes. Uh, if we wanted to communicate with a news source, we would have to have called them on the phone. Remember that thing? Actually, a dial phone. And it was a long-distance charge. It would have cost a small fortune. Remember when you got a long-distance call? Everybody would go, everybody would panic. Long distance, long distance, stop what you're doing. Somebody's on the phone, it's long distance. Costing them 50 bucks a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if it wasn't the phone, then we'd have to either mail them a letter and wait days or weeks for a response. And this was just a couple of decades ago. Right. It's amazing that we forget how far we've gone. Or with Canada Post today. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Whereas a couple of decades ago, you could get twice a day mail. That's right. Isn't for six days a week. Yeah, yeah. Now, after the show, we archive it on our server, which, by the way, exists in another country, the United States, and make it available to anyone instantly via our website. Archiving of radio programs decades ago would have been on reel-to-reel tape and stored in the studio. In fact, due to the expense and size of the recording media back then, most of the shows would never have been archived at all. Now, when we have guests on the show, we employ another marvelous technology. It just flips me out, actually. Only made available to the common man just in the past couple of decades, the videotape recorder or the video recorder. Here I am still using the word tape. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I still say tape, and I think we'll be saying that, you know, 20 years from now, they'll be saying, where did that phrase originate? <laughs> That'll really date you and I, Bob. Right. Now, when, remember back You when mean we, video cameras, though. Video camera, yeah. 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 Remember a recorder. couple of decades ago, we would hold political events and... Uh, I'd have to go out and rent the camera. I, I'd sort of be the person in charge of going out and renting the video camera, buying a VHS or beta tape for about 10 bucks, and recording the event, and by what are today's standards, really poor quality. But today, we have two really high-definition cameras we set up here in the studio. Usually when we have guests, we don't usually record the show when, when we don't have cats. And the end result, allowing for our amateur knowledge of uh, photography, is quite outstanding. Again, the editing is done at home on very inexpensive and commonly available video editing software. It usually comes bundled with your computer and uploaded to our website on YouTube uh, within days of the broadcast. It's usually days because we <laughs> we're pretty busy. It's hard to get around mm. to it. And uh, although the show itself is always archived the same day, oh, within a couple hours, yeah. 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 Computing and the internet have made not only this show possible, it's broken the stranglehold. This is the most important. It's broken the stranglehold on news gathering, reporting, and analysis, once held by very few large companies and very select individuals. But today, as we all know, millions of people all over the world are taking out their smartphones, recording news events, and uploading them to the Internet within seconds. The world is at our fingertips. It's at 
fingertips of anyone with internet access. But what has not progressed as fast as technology is the quality of the reporting. No matter how tech-savvy we are or how much tech we have at our disposal, there's absolutely no substitute for experience, experienced journalism, formal education under the tutelage of experts, and intelligence. These things don't come on sale at Future Shop during Black Friday. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no substitute for that. And when we come back from this break, we're going to be talking about some more technology and science that makes this place the wonderful place that it is. I'm preparing an inoculant to counter the effects of gravimetric radiation. Of course, if you were a hologram, you'd simply adjust your mobile emitter. That's what I did on Arrakis Prime, one of my first away missions. I don't recall that. This was before you came aboard. Such an enchanting planet. Crystalline glaciers, magnesium vapor atmosphere. I had to stop my metallurgical scans just to admire the sheer beauty of it, to smell the roses, to coin a phrase. An inefficient use of your time. (laughs) Perhaps. We're all finished here. Except for one thing. Would you mind recording some images when you're inside the ellipse? For those of us not lucky enough to make the trip. You envy my participation on this mission. There isn't a crewman aboard who doesn't. Why? I can only tell you how I felt that morning when I materialized on Arrakis Prime. I left my footprints in the magnesite dust and thought, one small step for a hologram One giant leap for mankind. To coin a phrase. Electromagnetic radiation interfering with primary systems. I can't get away from it. Activating the transspectral imager. I'll record as much data as I can. It's right on top of me. I'll transmit as much as I can. That's all she wrote. NASA received Kelly's last telemetry at 0922 hours, October 19th, 2032. I thought I was the Mars buff. You seem to know more about the Ares IV than I do. The Mars missions paved the way for the exploration of space. Kelly was one of my childhood heroes. Mine too. That's dedication. The man's life's about to end, but he won't stop taking readings. Makes you wonder if those old timers were made of sterner stuff than we are. You think we have it easy? (laughs) Are you kidding? Warp drive, shields, transporters? We're traveling in the lap of luxury. Kelly and Kumagawa, Armstrong and Glenn, they were the real pioneers. Am I interrupting? We're just admiring someone, fellow explorer. Hero worship, the glorification of an individual's accomplishments. I guess you didn't have many role models growing up. In the collective, personal accomplishments are irrelevant. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not in this society. I love hero worship. But, you know, nobody's perfect. But um, there's absolutely nothing wrong in admiring the achievements of a particular individual. 
That's true, but she's correct in saying that in a collective society, accomplishments are irrelevant. Yeah, and hero worship is irrelevant yeah. because there's no individual in the collective. But there's something else that Seven of Nine, that, by the way, that was a, a Voyager clip, obviously, to those who haven't <laughs> who live in a cave. Um, that was Seven of Nine. And one thing she said um, was smelling the roses is an inefficient use of your time. Totally disagree. Matter of fact, there's a lot of friends that I have uh, who who say, "Why do you dwell on things like technology and, and space exploration and things like that?" Well, to me, that's smelling the roses. That's mm. actually enjoying the universe for being the universe. You know, I love. What's their alternative? What are they suggesting should yeah. you should be doing? Put your nose to the grindstone, and well, you know, there's 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 things to be said for that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, for the work ethic and all that, which both you and I have, I'm, I'm sure, in abundance, but. Sometimes you just have to sit back and enjoy science, enjoy the universe, look at a, look at a planet and go, wow. You know? it's, it's just like when we had uh, Professor Christopher Essex mm-hmm. in, you know, and we talked about that. And he said, yeah, it's enjoying the discovery of everything you learn. You know, mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what motivates people. Otherwise, we wouldn't even bother. This is called a branch of aesthetics that's called a branch of philosophy that's called aesthetics, right? Right. So yeah, sure. You got your your other branches of philosophy, which basically lead to all, up, all the way up to politics and good work and ethics and things like that. But at the top of the pyramid of philosophy is aesthetics, the appreciation of everything around us. So, with that in mind, let's talk about planetary science, which is what I consider smelling the roses. You know, I remember as a nine-year-old back in 1970, back in the before time making a class project out of black crepe paper and plaster of Paris. It was a model of the known solar system. It was a pretty basic affair, nine planets and an asteroid belt in the sun. Now, what I knew of the planets at the time came only from library books, remember, no personal computers or internet. And what scientists knew of the planets was really basic compared to what they know today. This was the time before interplanetary space probes. The first probe to Mercury, Mariner 10, was in 1973, three years after I made that that um, that class project, yeah. Mind you, there were there were a few probes out to Venus and Mars, but they all yielded only grainy photos of clouds on Venus and craters on Mars. And we were still entertaining the idea of possible life on a planet like Venus. Oh know, yeah, r- r- right up <laughs> till quite a while, not that long ago. That's true. Yeah, we still had to rely on ground-based telescope observations of the outer planets, which told us very little. We couldn't see the rings of Jupiter, Uranus, or Neptune. Mind you, you still can't see them with a telescope, but they can with the probes. And we thought that these gas giants only had a few moons, and the Kuiper Belt wasn't even hypothesized yet. Now, since 1970, our knowledge of the solar system has grown by quantum leaps, thanks to space probes from NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab at the California Institute of Technology and a few probes from the European Space Agency. Our image of our immediate solar neighborhood includes now eight planets gone down from nine. Pluto, of course, being a dwarf planet, one of several. Over a thousand Kuiper Belt objects have been observed and over a hundred new moons around the planets that we already knew existed. Jupiter alone is now known to have over 60 moons. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Mind you, a lot of them are just big rocks, but (laughs) still classified as moons. Just this July, astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope discovered a fourth moon around Pluto. (laughs) <laughs> Temporarily called, I think, P4. The other ones are great names. They've got uh, Sharon, Nix, and Hydra. And they have the name the new one. 
Now, if I were to make another plaster of Paris representation of the solar system, I'd need a lot more plaster of Paris, <laughs> I think. <laughs> what I find disheartening, though, is the rare media coverage given to these fantastic discoveries. Back in the 60s, remember, the world standing still as we landed on the moon and as the first manned space shuttle left it off. Everybody stopped what they were doing. They'd show it in Times Square on that big TV. Today... We may hear of the launch of a planetary probe like the news five days ago of the launch of the Mars rover Curiosity. While rocket launches make for great television spectacle, the real science and discovery takes place over weeks or months or even years as these probes and rovers orbit the planets or roam their surfaces, taking photos and sampling rocks. One of the most dramatic gains in our understanding of the solar system occurred in January of 2005, when the European Space Agency Huygens probe landed on the surface of Titan's moon, I mean Saturn's moon, Titan. (laughs) How many people even know that, you know? The images sent back revealed an almost Earth-like range of mountains and lakes, except these lakes were lakes of liquid methane. The orbiting Cassini probe, the so-called mothership, took several radar images of the surface of Titan, mapping these mountain ranges and lakes with such precision and clarity It's opened our minds to this mysterious new world. Ground observations of such detail are absolutely impossible. I mean, ground meaning from Earth. Mm. Again this year, space probe Messenger began its orbiting mission around Mercury, mapping its surface and studying its magnetic field and tenuous atmosphere. One of my favorite planetary missions was the Galileo probe to Jupiter. This is not common knowledge out there, and that's what really depresses me sometimes is that no, it shouldn't depress me ra- that well, much, no, I suppose. I think People have their point. different ways of smelling the roses type of thing, True, but this is mine. But still, not hearing of this stuff in the news can be... If, in, when, at a time when we used to hear it more often, that was, that was an uplifting thing for a society yeah. in general. It sure was. And I do think that, you know, despite what you've said, I think that if we were actually looking at a first manned mission to, say, Mars... No, yeah, that I would be I think different. we'd all be watching TV. Oh, yeah, <laughs> or, you can bet your socks yeah, we would, yeah. Or the Internet, whatever it would be. But just take this Galileo probe and the accomplishments it's had and how, how it really should have gotten a lot more press... On its way um, to Jupiter, it examined the far side of her own moon, took close-up pictures of the asteroids Gasper and Ida, discovering that Ida had a little tiny moon called Dactyl, measured only about a, one and a half kilometers in, in diameter. Can you imagine? An asteroid with a moon. <laughs> I mean, this just, just flips me out. Just before it reached Jupiter in 95, it witnessed the impact of comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 into the planet's atmosphere. An amazing sight. Mm-hmm. Galileo went on to drop a probe into the atmosphere of Jupiter and sample directly the atmosphere of that planet. The main body, the mothership again, if you will, continued in orbit around the planet, taking measurements and photos of the cloud tops of Jupiter and its many moons. In fact, the Galilean team discovered most of the moons of the planet. We now have a detailed understanding of most of these uh, massive planets and and their strange moons, We have been so intrigued by Europa, for example, that plans are underway right now to send a probe to this icy world itself. The European Space Agency has taken the lead role in this mission with Russia, the United States, and Japan, also making significant contributions. If all goes uh, goes as planned, we can expect a launch in the early 2020s. Just as Galileo opened our eyes to the mini-planetary system of Jupiter, the Cassini mission to Saturn, as I mentioned before, given us insight into this beautiful world and its many moons. But before it arrived at Saturn, you wouldn't believe the route it took to get to Saturn. People think, oh, up up goes the rocket, straight to Saturn. Nope. 
it took um, what, call, what are called gravity assists, but you know they should actually be called angular momentum assist because it's not the gravity that they, that's assisting; sure. it's angular momentum. But I think that's a mouthful. And um, well, it depends upon gravitational forces, though, doesn't it? No, it depends on their no. angular momentum of the planet circling the sun. Is how it was that? That's what the energy that they're capturing to increase their speed. How is that different from, from? It bends from the root. That's the gravity bends the root. Right. But uh, as far as speeding them up, which is what happens, it's the angular momentum. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to get to, to, to Saturn, what did it do? Cassini flew by Venus twice, then our own moon, then the Earth on the same day as the moon, then it flew by the asteroid uh, Masursky, then an angular momentum assist from Jupiter, and finally arriving at Saturn after a voyage of seven years. The orbiter- some guy makes a, makes a mathematical... Error along the way. <laughs> they missed their target. By the way, that's they? happened, yes. Has especially it? on the way to Mars, Ooh, yeah. Ouch. You know, there's lots more planetary missions I haven't mentioned, but the, the last one I'll mention that really piques my interest is one that's yet to reach its destination. That is Pluto New Horizons. What excites me about New Horizons is that it's going to be the arrival of the first space probe to a dwarf planet, a Kuiper Belt object. The distance from Earth is mind-boggling, and what New Horizons will discover there is still anybody's guess. I'm just happy that I am alive at a time of such voyages and through the inventions of the computer and the internet I'm able to witness, if only vicariously, in their discoveries. So stop and smell the roses. Good message, Robert. I think it's a great way to end the show off today as we leave for another week and we'll continue our journey in the right direction next week when we hope you will be here to join us. See you then. Take care. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I thought you didn't like violence, Pop. Well, I don't, son, but I think we should be prepared at all times and we don't want any more black eyes, do we? Uh-uh. If we don't do something by tomorrow, we'll run out of eyes. Well, okay, let's work out in this body bag. This is Jack McGinney, and he's just called you a terrible name. What did he call me? Tootie Fruity? Nobody's gonna call me a Tootie Fruity. Let me at him! Fine, son, fine, son. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Leave some for me. (laughs) 